All week long, I've been saying to my wife, Laurel, things like, uh, hey, I'm preaching on Jonah and the ark this week. And because I do that just to mess with her, you know, and she looks at me and says, don't do that. <laughs> don't do that. Because you know how you are. And I know how I am. Last week, I called Dan Smay, Tim Smay, right? And so if I happen to mention, you know, Moses and the ark, when I'm talking about Jonah and the great fish, you'll have to just change that in your mind. You can fix that uh, mistake of mine that I am want to make. The image that's before you on the screen is actually a picture that was taken when I was there at Joppa. Someone said, that's the ugliest whale I've ever seen. The ugliest whale ever was probably the one that Noah saw, or I mean Noah, there it was, right? <laughs> probably one that Jonah saw, right? Yeah. Yeah, but what that is, it was a fountain, and it's there at Joppa, the port where uh, Jonah departed to go to Tarshish. Uh, and the reason it's discolored is because evidently the water that they pump out of the spout has some minerals in it that have uh, made that uh, poor poor whale look uh, look his age anyway, right? Yeah. So I'd like to ask you if you would open your Bibles to the book of Jonah, because that's where we're going to be. We're going to be in chapter 1, 2, 3, and 4. There is a Bible app event for this message, and you might find that helpful to you as you follow along. I am going to begin by reading not from the Bible, but from a story. When I was in sixth grade, I can remember it was sixth grade because I remember where I sat when I was reading it. I read a story uh, of a guy who was in a great fish, and it wasn't Jonah. It was in a book that my brother brought home probably from the five and ten store, you know, like that was the family dollar of the day. And, you know, it was one of those ones that was in the rack, and I think it was like amazing stories that are unbelievable. That might have been the title of it or something like that. And uh, it was a story about a guy whose name was James Bartley. And when I read it, I'm like, wow, this is so cool. And I have looked and looked and looked for that story since the internet has come along and never been able to find it until this week. And what I want to do, I found it in an Australian paper. I want to read it to you, okay? So listen as I read. In February 1891, a whaling ship, Star of the East, was in the vicinity of the Falkland Islands when the lookout sighted a large sperm whale three miles away. Two boats were launched, and one of the harpooners was able to spear the whale. The second boat attacked the whale, but was upset by the lash of the tail, and the men were thrown into the sea. One man was drowned, and another, James Bartley, disappeared. The whale was killed in a few hours, and its great body lying against the ship's side, while crew members busied themselves with axes and spades removing the blubber. They worked all day and part of the night, and the next morning, they attached some tackle to the belly of the whale and hoisted it onto deck. Suddenly, the sailors were startled by something in it, which gave spasmodic signs of life. Inside the belly was found the missing sailor, doubled up and unconscious. He was placed on deck and treated to a bath of seawater, which soon revived him, but his mind was not clear. He was placed in the captain's quarters, where he remained for two weeks, a raving lunatic. By the end of the third week, he had entirely recovered, but his face, neck, and hands were bleached to a deathly whiteness and never recovered their natural appearance. Wow, what a great story, right? That is such a cool story, but you know what? There is no historical evidence that that man ever existed. In fact, there's evidence that's quite contrary. There was a ship in that day in that region called Star of the East, but it was not a whaler. And the manifests were all preserved through the years, and uh, (laughs) there was never a James Bartley on any of those particular voyages. And what really sinks the whale story, you see what I did there? What really sinks the whale story is a letter written by the wife of the captain of the Star of the East, Mrs. John Killam. Listen to what she writes. There is not one word of truth to the whale story. I was with my husband all the years he was in the Star of the East. There was never a man lost overboard while my husband was with her. The sailor 
has told a great sea yarn, indeed. Indeed. Still a great story, though, right? It was kind of fun to hear. You know, among the reasons that people create sea yarns like that, I think, is the idea that if we could just find a biblical, if we could find a a modern-day example of a biblical phenomenon, wouldn't that be cool? Because then we could get people to actually believe the Bible. If we could have something more recently that happened just like that, then people would say, wow, I believe that, right? I don't think so. I honestly don't think that I need to turn water into wine so that you can believe that Jesus turned water into wine. Nor do I think that we need to see someone sustained in the belly of a great fish in order for us to believe that God was able to sustain Jonah that way. But honestly, sustaining Jonah... That is not the point of this Bible story. What is the point? What is the point of Jonah and the great fish? Well, let's look at the story and see if we can figure that out. It actually, the story begins in chapter 1 with the idea that God wants to confront Nineveh's evil. So follow along, if you would, if your Bibles are open or if you have the Bible app going there, follow along and, and we'll, we'll, we'll uncover this. Chapter 1, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. Okay, hold on. Let's talk for a minute about the evil of Nineveh. It was a principal city in the Assyrian Empire. It was a capital for some time. I'm going to give you some information from um, a, a publication called the World History Encyclopedia. And I've actually put a link to this page on the Bible app if you want to follow, not follow along, if you want to look that up later, uh, that could be helpful to you. The information that they have actually comes from reliefs. You can see that on the screen. That's a huge relief, like tall relief carved out, and it was on the palace walls in Nineveh. Archaeologists brought it to the British Museum um, in the late 1800s or mid-1800s. I'm not sure when exactly. Um, my wife and I were there and saw it years ago, and I wish I had known then what I know now because I would have paid a lot more attention to it. The picture you're looking at there is a picture of someone from Assyria. Nineveh was the capital at one time. And I don't know if you can tell, he's got a hold of somebody by the hair, and he has a dagger that he's poking into his back there. Um, this uh, relief would come from the siege of Lachish, which was an area of Israel. And it really, that siege took place probably a generation or so after Jonah's adventures. But they show us a little bit about what the Assyrians were like and how they used terror, that is terrorism, to, to control their enemies. They demonstrated their cruelties and their evil. And my goal is here in the next couple minutes to just to help you see the people of Nineveh through the eyes of a Jewish guy named Jonah, Okay. I'm just going to share with you three things. There's many, many more. Three things that Assyrian soldiers were known for. Number one is decapitation. They didn't just do that to kill people. They did that to collect the heads. And they would take those heads. Have you seen the Indiana Jones movies, right? Their skulls, right? That was a Ninevite kind of thing to do. They were going to take these heads and we're going to parade them while they're fresh. And then when they're not fresh, we're going to take the skulls and we're going to keep them so that anybody who happens to visit us will see all of our enemy's skulls there. What's the purpose? I want you to know, if I'm a Ninevite, I want you to know we are brutal. We are brutal. Don't mess with us. I'll give you a second example. Second example is something called impaling. Now, when you think of impaling, you might think of taking a sword or, or, or a sear and, and, and hitting someone with it, uh, piercing them with it. That would be far less barbaric than what the people of Assyria did. And, and I'm sorry, this is kind of a PG accounting here, right? But hang on, hang in there, it's worth it. 
uh, they, they would, impaling meant that you took a person and you took a spear or a pole and you put it through their torso, starting at the bottom, and you kept it in line with their spine up through their torso and out the top. And then you didn't put them the whole way down, you put that in the ground so that there they were on this large thing impaled with their head up here and their feet down here and the, and the pole running through their torso. And you left them there to die and then to be eaten by birds, by beasts, or by worms, whatever it was. Impaling. Eventually that became known as what? We really refined it as humankind. What did we call it? Crucifixion, eventually. We got a little more sophisticated in the things we did. Okay, so why? Why did the, why did the people of Nineveh, the Assyrians, why did they do this? And the answer is because we want you to know that we are barbaric. We want you to know that. Let me give you one more. It's called flailing. I'm sorry. It's called flaying. F-L-A-Y-I-N-G. I had to look it up. I didn't know what it was. It's a matter of removing the skin while the person is still living. All of it. Whew. Yeah. And you always do that in public. And you always do it when that person's people are there and you force them to watch. No one survived flaying. No one survived it. What's the purpose? Because we want you to know we people of Assyria are vicious. We're vicious. And so you see that the people of Nineveh were evil, and they advertised that they were evil. And it's no wonder God says what I just read back in verse 2 when it says, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. Yeah, it's no wonder God says that. And it's no wonder Jonah says, I don't want anything to do with that. I don't want anything to do with that mission. And he actually heads in the opposite direction. Look at verse 3 of chapter 1. It says, But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed in the opposite direction, headed for Tarsus. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. And you know the story. The storm comes up, and the sailors realize there's nothing they can do, even though they're seasoned sailors. There's nothing we can do. And so they cast lots to find out, like, maybe one of the gods is mad at one of us. And sure enough, they find out it's Jonah. And Jonah tells them, I'm running away from God. And after they, ex- after they exhaust all their options, the sailors decide to do what Jonah suggests. In verse 15, it says, they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. And then two verses later, look how the chapter ends. Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Pretty cool. We're not going to talk about the fish, though, because talking about the fish is fun, but that's not the point. The the fish is really just a vehicle. It's a vehicle to deliver two things. Number one, it delivers the point of the message. Number two, it delivers Jonah to where he needs to be. And while he's in that transit, while he's on that uber fish, so to speak, right, Jonah has a change of heart. He changes his tune in chapter 2. And he calls out to God. In fact, nearly all of chapter 2 is God either, I'm sorry, Jonah either praying or talking about his prayer. And, and really, all I want you to see from that prayer is something he says in verse 8, because it's important to understand how Jonah understands God. Look at what verse 8 says. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. What I want you to see there is that Jonah knew that God was a God of love and a God who received people who, who come to him. But the other thing I want you to know, this passage doesn't say it, but Jonah is not a person of love. 
God is a God of love. But Jonah, he has a little bit of trouble with that. Now, at the end of chapter 2, we see Jonah's delivered to where he needs to get a restart. In verse 10, it says, And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto the dry land. And so by chapter 3, Jonah's like, I'm going to deliver the message. Verse 3, Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to the city of Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. So he's warning them about the destruction, and they take that message to heart. It's quite remarkable. And you know, you, you can read stories and hear teachers read commentaries. Maybe you've heard pastors say, no wonder, what did he look like after three days in the belly of a whale? What did that, or fish, what, that, what did that stomach acid do to him? But I just want to say, it's probably more likely the Spirit of God. Because the Spirit of God cares about these people of Nineveh. And he's working, as Jonah's working, to change their heart. And in verse 5, they proclaim a fast. It says, the Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. So they're like, we really have messed up, and we believe God might, God is going to destroy us. So they repent, and a miracle happens. Look at verse 10. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented. By the way, the most simple definition of relented is he changed his mind. He relented and did not bring them the destruction he had threatened. God changing his mind. If you're reformed, that really messes with your brain. You know, it's like, ah! it's almost like the random arrow that hits, you know, back then. It's like, if God knows, God knew ahead of time that they were going to repent, so he didn't have to change his mind, you know, and, and reformed people really, they get all excited about that. You can watch your blood pressure just going up when you look at Jonah 3.10. You want to talk about that? That's not pulpit stuff. That's small group stuff. <laughs> but I can tell you what is pulpit stuff. This question of anger. Because that's what you're going to see in the rest of the story. You're going to see Jonah's response to what they did. Because when, when it says, when God saw how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring the destruction he had threatened. And that's going to make Jonah really angry. And I suggest Jonah was angry to begin with. And anger? Hmm. <laughs> It's not a good thing. I'll tell you, a, a Bible verse worth memorizing, a couple of them, is James chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. I, I never memorized it, but I, I went to it so many times and read it so many times that I can pretty much tell you what it says. Chapter 19, it begins and says, My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry, because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. See that sentence? Human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Yeah, but, nope, no but. But what about, no what about? Anger is, nope. Human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. See, I don't think Jonah's story is a story about a great fish. I don't think Jonah's story is a story about a prayer given from the depths in chapter 2. I don't think Jonah's story is a prayer about Jonah preaching faithfully and the Spirit of God working in their hearts. I don't think Jonah's story is a story about the, the Lord changing his mind, the Lord relenting and not destroying them. I think that Jonah's story is a story of Jonah's anger. And I don't think it could be stated any stronger than it's stated in chapter 4, verse 1. I mean, look at the text in chapter 4, verse 1. But to Jonah, okay, now hang on, let me give you the context. Here's what's just happened. 
Jonah said, God's going to destroy you all because you're evil. And they said, "Uh uh-oh, we're sorry for being evil. We won't be evil anymore. Please forgive us. And God said, okay, I forgive you. Okay, that's what just happened. Now look what, look at the word but and the words that follow it. 4-1. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong. And he became angry. I want to say, this is one place (laughs) that the NIV nails the translation. They have it so well phrased. And, and, and that's a contrast to different translations which say something like, this displeased Jonah, displeased him. <laughs> Jonah was displeased. You're doggone right he was displeased. But that really feels like an understatement to me. Look at those words in the NIV. It says, this seemed very wrong. It doesn't say, Jonah questioned this. It doesn't say, this seemed to be a little bit off to Jonah. It doesn't even say, this seemed wrong to Jonah. It says, this seemed very wrong to Jonah. In his mind, God had done wrong. Not just something wrong, something very wrong. God had done evil. In fact, the Hebrew language that is used here is the exact same language that is used of the evil that the Ninevites were prone to commit. Don't miss it. God, you're just as bad as they are. That is what Jonah is saying. And in verse 2, Jonah communicates a sort of disgust regarding what's been done. Follow along, chapter 4, verse 2. He prayed to the Lord, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That, that is why I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord... Take away my life, for it is better for me to die than live. I just want to say, you got to give him props. you got to give him credit for being so gutsy, right? I mean, he let God have it with both barrels. He might have been expecting a couple barrels to come back at him. But this story tells us something so beautiful about God. It tells us that God pursues us when we are angry. I don't know about you, but when I see someone who's angry, if that's not my monkey, it's not my circus, I'm leaving, you know? I'm not going to chase that guy down. At best, even if I know him, I'm going to try to let him cool down before I try to talk to him about what's going on. But in verse 4, God pursues angry Jonah with a question. Verse 4 says, But the Lord replied, Is it right? for you to be angry. And the question just hangs there. It just hangs there. Jonah doesn't answer it. God doesn't instruct him to answer it. It's just there. Is it right for you to be angry? I wonder why Jonah doesn't answer And I wonder if maybe, could it be that Jonah doesn't want to talk about his anger and the right and the wrong of it? He just wants to be angry. And I suggest this because it is hard to let go of anger. It is hard to do so. I think sometimes in our lives, our very identity becomes something that's difficult to separate from our own anger. 
It's like it's a part of us. I have heard people say when they're dealing with the issue of forgiveness, I've heard them say, if I let go of my anger, what do I have left? Have you heard someone say that? Do you know people like that? Have you ever kind of felt that way yourself? I suspect that this is the kind of anger that Jonah has. And if you think I'm overstating that possibility, think back to the war crimes the people of Nineveh advertised. This is what we do. Those skulls are who we are. Those bodies on those poles, we put them there. And that skin that's hanging on my wall, that is not a buffalo hide. We do that. Do you think you can overstate Jonah's anger? And then think of the extremes to which Jonah went to avoid having to provide the grace of God to this people. He would rather die. And then if you think I'm overstating Jonah's anger, consider the fact that that is the question that God asks him. (laughs) Is it right for you to have this anger? Hmm. I think Jonah knows he's wrong. I don't think he cares. Because anger is like that. (laughs) I think he's so angry, he doesn't even want to change. Anger. You know, it's pretty ugly. There's a children's author named Louise Fitzhugh. I don't know her. I said, do you know Louise Fitzhugh? To my wife, and she said, oh yeah, she's children's author. This is what I know about her. It's a quote. She says this, There is no sight so ugly as a human face in anger. It's probably true, right? I mean, no one ever said, You know, when I saw how Martha looked when she was angry, I knew she was the girl for me. (laughs) Right? No one ever said that. And our society even uses the phrase, He's really mad when someone is angry, because we kind of see how it looks a little like insanity, madness, craziness. Anger doesn't look good on anyone. And because it's ugly, I think we kind of look for ways to vindicate ourselves, to justify our anger, to make it okay for us to be angry. And I think that that is what Jonah is going to do in the rest of chapter 4. Jonah goes out of town. I mean, he's been in a city... They have repented. He knows they repented. And now he goes up to what I imagine to be a hillside to kind of sit there and wait. But he's not waiting for what I used to think he was waiting for. I think that he's waiting for God to do nothing. (laughs) I think in his twisted mind, he's waiting for himself to be vindicated, his anger to be justified. He's just accused God of doing evil, not punishing the war crimes of the people of Nineveh. And now he's waiting, waiting on that hillside to be proven right. Look at verse 5. It says, Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. And most people are thinking, he's waiting for the fire to fall. Maybe God will still judge him. He's hoping on, holding on to hope that God will still destroy them. I don't think so. I think he knows there's no judgment coming. I think he's counting on no judgment to come. I think he knows that they've repented. I think he watched them repent. I think that he, he knows that God has forgiven them. And he knows that God is forgiving in general. He just wrote a poem about that back in chapter 2. And I think, 
I think he, it just really ticks him off. And he's just waiting to see. It's just like I said it was. God didn't do it, and this is why I didn't come here in the first place. Jonah is an angry man, waiting for God to do nothing so he can come, go back home, confirmed in his anger toward God. And if that happens, if he sees God's grace given to his enemy and he walks away hating God for being gracious, that'll be the worst thing that could ever happen to Jonah. Hmm. But there's this cool thing about God. God seems to do his best work when we are at our worst. And he does some amazing work with Jonah. He doesn't just let him, let him bake out there in the sun, smolder in his anger. God actually turns Jonah's, Jonah's attention toward his own heart. He has him look at himself. He's saying, hey, Jonah, let's stop looking at Nineveh for a minute. And why don't we take a look under the hood? Why don't we take a look at your heart, Jonah? Shall we do that? And it kind of makes me think of communion. You hear this almost every time that communion is served. It should go through your mind anyway, that one ought to examine oneself before eating the bread or drinking the cup. And so he's basically saying to, to Jonah, stop looking at Nineveh for a moment. Let's take a look in the mirror. And in verse 6, God uses an incredibly creative way to, to help Jonah do this. Look at verse 6. Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the plant, so it withered. And when the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint and wanted to die and said it would be better for me to die than to live. Now, listen... You're at the end of the book of Jonah here, and all my life as a kid growing up and even into my young adulthood, I thought that this was kind of the appendix, that this is kind of like the extra add-on. People wonder how it ends. Here's how it ends. But the important part is the great fish. This is the important part. This is the heart of the story of Jonah. Jonah, Jonah's sitting there, and his, his plant grows up over him, and he's like, ah, oh, this is good. And then a worm comes along, and his plant dies. And it said, when the sun rose, God provided a scorching wind and the sun blazed over his head. So he grew faint and he wanted to die and said, it'd be better for me to die than to live. And God asks that same question again. Verse nine, God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? And Jonah is like a stubborn child. I mean, I can see myself doing this when I was like a little kid, like 18 years old or maybe 28, 38. Is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is. And I am so angry, I wish I were dead. Now, if you examined the inside of Jonah's heart, you would see that things are not what they should be. What if you examined the inside of your own heart? Do you struggle with anger? (laughs) How can you not in this world? Do you find yourself mad at someone close to you? Are you concerned about things that are way outside of your control and are not really going to affect you personally anyway, but you're just mad? Do you struggle with anger toward God because he's not doing anything? Because he's not doing what you think he should do? I mean, take a look inside your own heart. Is there a little bit of Jonah perking in there? (laughs) There is in my own from time to time, but that doesn't make it okay just because it's in mine. 
It's something that needs to be dealt with. And God turns Jonah's attention toward his own heart, and then God turns his head, lifts his head, to see the world around him. He says in verse 10, but the Lord God said, you have been concerned about this plant, though you didn't tend it or make it grow. It sprang out overnight and died overnight. In other words, you're making demands about something you had nothing to do with to bring into to play, and it's just a matter of your own comfort that kind of comes and goes. And then in verse 11, he says, and should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from the left, and also many animals? Can you see something other than yourself for a minute, Jonah? I mean, can, can you look at the needs of others? Can you see that these people, that the reason they are so incredibly evil is because they are so desperately lost? Do you see that they need the Lord just like you need the Lord? Do you understand that they're trapped in their sin just like you're trapped in your anger right now? Can you see that? Because if you can see that, it might, it might cause to come into being this little tiny thing called grace in your heart. And it might help you set aside your anger. It, it, it will be good for you. Can you just trust me? Jonah, can you trust me that I know what I'm doing? And can you follow me? I mean, look at verse 11 again. And do you not hear God saying, I know what I'm doing? And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and so many animals? (laughs) When I'm angry about something I see God allowing to happen, or maybe even making happen, it's generally because I'm struggling to trust him. And that's kind of crazy. Why, why would I not trust him? And again, so many times in these Bible stories, the, the solution that Jonah needs and the solution that you need and the solution that I need is to turn our attention away from that which is distracting us and to point our attention toward the cross because if the cross does nothing else, it shows you you can trust him. You can trust him. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? You can trust him. And when you do trust him, the anger tends to fade. We're not really told the outcome of Jonah's story. It ends kind of weird, you know? I think in the King James, the last phrase is, and much cattle. (laughs) I mean, it's just kind of, that's a weird ending, right? We're not told much about how it ends. Did Jonah go back to the city and and help them out. There is a group of Orthodox people who believe he became a missionary there. Maybe he died on that hillside. That would be a possibility. Maybe he goes back to Judea. I don't know. Maybe he just retires. No matter what, though, we can use his experience to adjust our own hearts, and we can do what Scripture tells us to do before we celebrate the Lord's Supper. Each one should examine his own heart before eating the bread or drinking the cup. So as you come to communion, I invite you to do that. I invite you to look at your own heart. Do you see problems there? And I invite you to give them to God. To say, I really have trouble forgiving here. I am really angry about this right here. I have this ugly thing inside of me. And no one's going to say, wow, Martha looks so pretty when she's ugly. No one's going to say that about me. (laughs) So, uh. I probably ought to get rid of it, and I want to get rid of it, and I'm really sorry for it, and I'd like you to take it. Would you take my anger, please, God? Would you take my anger, please? Look into your own heart. And and second, take a look at others. Those people that make you so angry, those people that kind of drive you crazy, can you just for a minute see their, their need? See that they're not a whole lot different than you. 
See, the, their problem is they need Jesus to do a work in them. And can you, instead of, instead of just allowing anger to be something that makes things worse in your heart, can you allow sympathy to be something that makes grace flow in your heart? Can you, can you lift your head away from looking at your own anger and look at their need? And can you look to the cross? And can you say, I think I can trust that God knows what he's doing here. And I think that whatever he's doing is not just for his honor and glory, but for our benefit because he loves us so deeply. I really think that that's what God had in mind for Jonah. I almost called him Noah. (laughs) I wonder if I did that today. Don't tell me if I did. I'll hear it on on the internet. But I wonder, I wonder if that's what God wanted. I know that's what God wanted for Jonah. He wanted him to be rid of his anger. Is it right for you to have this anger? No. So let it go. Be filled with my grace and my love. I want to take just a minute to allow you the opportunity to examine your own heart in that regard. And I'm going to ask musicians if they'll come at this time. And Laurel, if you don't mind, can you play just for a moment uh, some music for us? And we'll take communion together. So you should have before you your uh, bread and your cup. I love that the deaconesses have taken it upon themselves to kind of get these started for us. They clean their hands first, and then they get them started for us. And that's, that's just a blessing, right? One time I tried to open one, just about broke a tooth. They're firmly sealed, aren't they? Let's take a moment here, though, and look inside our own hearts. And just ask God, do I have something here that needs to take care of? Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, this is my body, which is for you. Take this in remembrance of me. I'm going to ask Eric if he would pray a prayer of thanks for the body of Christ, and we'll take it together. Eric? Examine our own heart. Lord, I pray that you would take this cup and clean the inside of it. This cup that we call our heart. That we would be open to that. That we would receive that. That we would strive to honor and glorify you. That our heart would be cleaned not for our own good, not for ourselves. But so that we can serve and honor you in the way that it should be. Lord, I thank you for this bread that signifies your body, the body that was broken. That we would honor it and glorify it in the way that it should be. We thank you, Father, for your presence in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. The body of Christ.
You know, we talked a lot about the evil of the Assyrians, and uh, and it was kind of an ugly, bloody mess, right? And we talked a week ago about crucifixion, and we talked about how that was kind of an ugly, bloody mess. Is that an understatement, right? You think about it for just a moment. We talked about we wear a cross. Uh, it's a a device for execution. It's good. I'm not against wearing crosses. Just remember what it is. Likewise, every, every first Sunday of the month at Kerbinsville Alliance, we hold this cup of grape juice and we say it signifies blood. Blood? Really? Why blood? Because the horrificness of my sin required a blood sacrifice, the horrificness of the sacrifice of the Lamb of God. Jesus said this is a new covenant, the new agreement, the new promise in my blood, written in my blood. There's no way to up the ante on that. You know what I mean? You can't say, well, you say blood, I say, I mean, you're there, right? We do that with other things like, well, there's bronze, there's silver, there's gold, there's platinum. When you get to blood, there's nothing else. Jesus says this is a supreme sacrificing gift for you. And because it is what it is, then there is no sin that that the people of Nineveh or the people of Clearfield County could commit that would not be coverable by this sacrifice. And that's just great news. That's great news. We're going to pray for the blood, the cup, the blood of Christ, and then we'll take it together. Please lead us in prayer, Josh. Lord God, we thank you for your amazing gift. Lord, because of the cross, we can trust you, and because of the empty tomb, we have hope. So God, as we uh, embrace this element, this symbol, God, we ask that we would be people of hope, that we'd be people of joy, trusting you in all things. May we see you, God, as, uh, as our steering wheel, not our spare tire, in life in general. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. The blood of Christ.